begin reading uh, at the beginning of chapter two. We looked at chapter two, verses one and two last week, but for the sake of context, it will be helpful to begin at the beginning of chapter two. I'll be reading chapter two and chapter three. Please pay attention now to the reading of God's holy word. The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts. Watch the road. Dress for battle. Collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are opened. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She is carried off, her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. Desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den? The feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and lioness went, where his cubs were with none to disturb. The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey. The crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel. Galloping horse and bounding chariot. Horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear. Hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face. And I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart, a sea and water, her wall? Cush was her strength. Egypt too, and that without limit. Put and the Libyans were her helpers. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. 
For her honored men, lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There will be, there will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. You increase your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spreads its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes like clouds of locusts settling on the fences in a day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, you've no doubt heard the saying from the German philosopher Friedrich Hegel that the only thing we learn from history is that we don't learn from history. Or the saying of Spanish-American philosopher George Santayana that those who do not learn history are doomed to repeat it. If you've ever been to an ordination examination in our presbytery, you know that we take history very seriously. We have examinations on church history and PCA history because we desire to learn from history and not repeat some of the mistakes from history. As students of God's word, we cannot be ambivalent about history. It really does matter. Kind of our main idea today as we're going through this passage in Nahum 2 and 3 is that we need to seek to learn from the past so that we can live faithfully for God in the present and hopefully for God into eternity. Say that again, we need to seek to learn from the past so that we can live faithfully for God in the present and hopefully for God into eternity. Again, we're looking at Nahum 2 and 3. Today, we're going to see how these dark and dreadful chapters about the destruction of Nineveh and her king and the Assyrian nation, how they can be a source of encouragement for us today as the people of God. In order to do that, we'll look at the past first. What happened to Nineveh? What happened to her king? And what happened to the whole nation of Assyria? And what does this mean for the church of Jesus Christ today in the present? And then how does this give us assurance about the future? 
little context here and a summary of what we looked at last week in chapter 1, 1 through 2, 2, if you weren't with us. Chapter 1, verses 2 through 8 is this hymn of praise that celebrates the character of God. We see that in verses 2 and 3, talking about God's jealousy, his wrath, uh, how he is slow to anger, how he is great in power. We see his power over creation and humanity in judgment in verses 3 through 6. And again, in verse 7, we see the statement of God's character that the Lord is good. And we see two types of people, those who trust him and take refuge in him and those who do not. Then there is this back and forth from chapter 1, verse 9 through chapter 2, two back and forth between Nineveh and her king, these uh, pronouncements of judgment and then pronouncements of salvation for God's people, this back and forth. We saw that chapter 2, verse 1, was the beginning of this sarcastic taunt for Nineveh to get ready for the judgment of God, saying that the scatterer has come, probably referring to Babylon. The Medes and the Babylonians would come upon Assyria and scatter them. The scatterer is at the gates. Get ready. That was the message. Now we see in beginning beginning in verse 3, what appears to be a vision that Nahum has about the destruction of Nineveh that's going to go through verse 10. In verse 3, we get a vivid description of the Babylonian army invading the city with their chariots and weapons. That's in verses 3 through 5. Then there's this chaotic rapid-fire scene in verse, that, con- that continues in verse 6 where the river gates are opened and the palace melts away. This depicts the flooding of Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was surrounded by a moat. Uh, There was a huge moat that went around, all the way around the city, and then a river that went through it. So what scholars and historians believe probably happened is that these, the invading armies, the Babylonians came and they dammed up the river uh, before the city, and then they they let it go, and it went in, and it, it flooded Nineveh and destroyed much of the city. So that's the picture of what we see in verse six. Verse seven, then here, this description of its mistress is stripped; she is carried off, her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves, and beating their breasts. This probably refers to Ishtar, who was the Assyrian goddess of love. Uh, what would happen in the ancient? times was that when an invading army would go in, they would go into the temples, they would steal the cult statues from these temples, and they would return them back to their own land and put them in their own temples, signifying that their gods were more powerful than the gods of these other nations. This symbolizes here the Assyrians' false deities uh, and their inability to protect them. You may Remember the scene in 1 Samuel 5 where the Philistines come and they take the Ark of the Covenant. They take it back into the temple of Dagon, their God. And then uh, Dagon ends up falling over and they set him back up and he falls over again. His head breaks off, his arms break off. And that was a symbol that Yahweh was powerful over the gods of the Philistines. They thought, hey, we got Israel's God, right? We captured him. We're going to put him in our temple and show who's boss. Well, God has the last laugh, right? And Dagon ends up on the ground in pieces. That's kind of what is going on here with Ishtar, this mistress being stripped and carried off. Verse 9, we see that all the wealth of this great city 
is plundered. All the ill-gotten gain from their destruction of the other nations around them that they have accumulated for years and years, for centuries, it's all taken away. It's all gone, which we see so clearly depicted in verse 10. Now, the English translation here tries to capture the intensity of this with the first line in verse 10. In the ESV, it reads, desolate, desolation and ruin. I think the ESV probably could have chosen a better word here uh, for that third word. The Christian Standard Bible I think, does a good job here. It says desolation, decimation, devastation. Because in the Hebrew, there's a kind of a building emphasis here. It goes from two syllables to three syllables to four syllables, and it's all rhyming. In the Hebrew, it's buka, mevuka, mevulaka. Okay, so if you would hear this in the original language, there's, there's this intensity, this building intensity, and this rhyming. So I think desolation, decimation, devastation, as the CSB puts it, sounds a little better than ruin, <laughs> but it's all good. I love the ESV. It's just one of those little things that I would change. But um, anyways, we see this. We see what's going on here. There's this intensity. There's this recognition that God is coming in judgment, and it's this increasing intensity of his judgment. The vision ends then with this powerful description of what this desolation would look like for the people of Nineveh. See that in the second half of verse 10. Internally, their hearts will melt and they will have anguish in their loins. And then externally, their knees will tremble and their faces will grow pale. God's judgment would be swift and fierce and comprehensive. Now, after talking about the city, Nahum turns his sights to the king of Assyria with this taunt in verses 11 to 13. The question that is posed here in the first line of verse 11 is really the pinnacle of the mockery. Where is the lion's den? To feel the weight of this question, we need to understand the significance of the lion in, in Assyrian culture and this we need to understand the symbolism of the lion one commentator says that the lion symbolized strength cunning and lordship and to the nations conquered by assyria the lion symbolized ruthlessness three previous assyrian kings had referred to themselves with these descriptions a potent lion a wild lion who is lordly with frightfulness, and one who raged like a lion against his enemies. That's the way the Assyrian kings viewed themselves and described themselves in relation to the peoples around them. And God says, no more. Where is the lion's den? The answer is nowhere. It will be destroyed. And all of those with the lion, the lionesses, the cubs, will be destroyed with him. We saw that earlier in uh, chapter one. Then we get uh, verse, sorry, verse 12. Um, lost my place here. Yes, verse 12. What we see there is this reminder that uh, Assyria has ravished the nations around them. They've 
He's torn these other nations. He's strangled the prey. He's filled his caves with the prey. And then we get the first of two of these powerful declarations from the Lord in verse 13. He says, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. This description of the Lord is very fitting here. The Lord of hosts in the Hebrew is Yahweh Sabaoth. It means the God of heaven's armies. The God of of angel armies, we could translate it. Assyria and her king with all of her military might and Nineveh with all of her defensive fortifications stands no chance against the Lord and against his armies. Now, whether it was Sennacherib, his army of 185,000, which were struck down by the angel of the Lord in one night, about 50 years prior to this, you can go read about that in 2 Kings 18 and 19. It's one of my favorite Old Testament narratives. See Hezekiah as Jerusalem is surrounded by the Assyrian army. Hezekiah takes this this mocking, threatening letter, and he goes and lays it out before the Lord, and he prays to the Lord. He says, God, open your eyes. See, hear how these Assyrians, how this army is mocking you, God, and save your people. And God does. He strikes down 185,000 troops. Imagine that scene. So whether it's that scene 50 years earlier, or whether it's the current king, Ashurbanipal, the message is the same to the Assyrians and to her army. The Lord is against you. Well, since we're focusing on the past here, let's think for a minute how this message would have been received. For the city of Nineveh, clearly it fell upon deaf ears. There was no repentance here like there was 100 years earlier in Jonah's day. Of course, Nineveh would fall in 612 to the Babylonians and the Medes. But how would this message have been received by God's people? Or how was it intended to be received? We have this book of Nineveh, of, of Nahum, in our Bibles for a reason. Right? This is a message for God's people. I didn't mention this last week, but Nahum's name means comfort. Kind of interesting, right? When we think about the contents of this book, the prophet's name is comfort. This was to be a message of comfort for the people of Judah. Though they had been subject to the wickedness of the Assyrians, the God of heaven's armies would fulfill his promises and his purposes, and he would deliver his people. Are we comforted today as we read this? We should be. This might feel something like something that's distant, something that's far away. But our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The comfort that was intended for God's people then is intended for us today. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in a little bit. Let's go to chapter three now. Chapter 3 continues with the imagery of the destruction of Nineveh. The first couple verses come back to the imagery of chariots and weapons. Then look at the middle of verse 3. This depicts the desolation mentioned in chapter 2, verse 10. Hosts of slain, heaps 
of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. It's very graphic imagery here. And then we're given the reason. We're given the reason for all of this death and destruction in verse 4. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and people, peoples with her charms. Nineveh is personified here as a prostitute and a sorceress. It was common then and common now to speak of cities or nations in feminine terms. If you've read your Old Testament, you know that prostitution and sorcery are two things that are condemned by the Lord and two things that God's people are specifically warned against. Consider the beginning chapters of Proverbs, where the young men of Israel are warned against Lady Folly, who is described in terms of prostitution. They are instead told to seek after wisdom and not folly. Wisdom is also a lady. So this is not some sexist, like, oh, it's only anti-women. Uh, also, obviously, he goes after the king of Nineveh in very masculine terms. So it's God is an equal opportunity offender here. But the sins associated with prostitution and sorcery are lusts for money and power. Two things that were abundant in Nineveh and in the Assyrian kingdom. And we see some of these same things today still, don't we? The sexualization of our culture, new age beliefs, witchcraft and sorcery being dubbed as white magic, right? Good magic. These things are great reasons for the judgment of God. As Christians, we need to have discernment in this world where these things really, in a lot of ways, are just as rampant as they would have been in this, in this day, in, in Nahum's day. We see then for the second time this indictment from the Lord in verse 5. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. How this judgment plays out in verses 5 through 7 parallels the judgment against the king and his family in, verses, in chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. In other words, the punishment fits the crime. Again, this is very graphic terms here in relation to prostitution and sorcery. God says, I will lift up your skirts over your face. I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. This is the way in the ancient days that prostitutes would have been treated publicly and been shamed. I will throw filth at you, verse 6, and treat you with contempt, make you a spectacle. All who look at you will shrink from you and say, wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Continuing on, then the rest of this chapter breaks into four sections. There are three taunts, and then there is a dirge. The first taunt is a historical taunt in verses 8 through 11. The question is posed to Nineveh in verse 8. Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water around her, her rampart a sea, and water her wall? Thebes was a city in Egypt that was conquered by the Assyrians. Despite the protection of the city from the Nile River, similarly how 
Nineveh was surrounded by this moat. Despite that, despite the surrounding nations who were fighting, for, fighting to help Thebes, the people of Thebes were exiled. The same fate then would come upon Nineveh. So there is this historical taunt of God saying, you went and destroyed this city. Why do you think your fate is any better than theirs? This fortified city that had all of this international protection that thought they couldn't fall. Why shouldn't you fall, Assyria? The second taunt then is a military taunt. We see this from verse 12 through the third line of verse 15. The things that should have provided protection, fortresses in verse 12, troops and gates in verse 13. These things are shown to be weak and vulnerable. The third taunt then is an economic taunt. We see this in the last two lines of verse 15 through verse 17. The merchants, the princes, the scribes of Nineveh, those things that symbolize money and power and learning. These things are compared to grasshoppers and locusts who are gathered together, but then they will just one day quickly fly away. And then finally, we see in verses 18 and 19, this dirge or this funeral song that is sung for the king of Assyria. It says, your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your peoples are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. Just an interesting side note here that I, I wasn't planning on mentioning, but I'll, I'll mention it for maybe you uh, kind of uh, trivia geeks, maybe. This might be a, I don't know if there's this, if there's ever a good Bible trivia question. There are only two books in the Bible that end in a question. Nahum and Jonah. Yes. And they're both about Nineveh. Just kind of interesting. That's it. Some, a little stumper for your next, uh, your next party. I don't know. Anyways, um, we see here all those who had been oppressed by the Assyrian king and his army will now rejoice over their downfall. They will clap their hands over the destruction of Assyria. And this is not an inappropriate response. God's people should rejoice when the Lord judges his and their enemies. This was a comfort for God's people then. But again, it's also a comfort for us today, isn't it? We said that we need to seek to learn from the past so that we can live faithfully for God in the present and hopefully for God into eternity. The question that was asked in chapter 2, verse 11 where is the lion's den? That's what I've titled the sermon. The question is asked with biting sarcasm and mockery against the king of Assyria. But this is not a question that is frozen in time in the middle of the six of the of 600s BC. God does not. God does essentially ask the same question of us today, does he not? Where is the lion's den? 
What are the things in which we are placing our trust? Where are we finding our security? Where have we sought to establish our own kingdoms? There is a sense in which we have all been our own lions or lionesses. But God has not been content to leave us alone in our rebellion. Paul writes in Romans 5, 8 through 10, that God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life We don't have to die for our sins because the lion of the tribe of Judah died for us while we were dead in our sin, while we were God's enemies. The judgment that fell upon the king of Assyria and the people of Nineveh, which we read at the beginning of chapter one, comes from the Lord who is jealous and avenging and wrathful, who will by no means clear the guilty. But that same God is slow to anger and he is good. He clears us of our guilt for the sake of his son. Friends, if you are in Christ today, if you are a new creation in him, that means that you are no longer at enmity with God. It means that the promised curse that was spoken to Satan by God in the Garden of Eden, that God would put enmity between Satan and Eve and between his offspring and her offspring, that her far off offspring, Jesus would bruise Satan's head and that Jesus would bruise his heel. This thing we call the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. This was fulfilled when Jesus died on the cross and rose again. And how does that truth affect our lives in the present? Paul reminded the Christians in Rome at the end of Romans that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. While Satan was defeated at the cross, he was not fully destroyed. In the meantime, we are called by Peter in 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9 to be sober-minded and watchful because our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We are to resist him. Where is the lion's den? Right now, it's this world. Satan is the God of this world who has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, 2 Corinthians 4.4. But, brothers and sisters, there is hope in the lion's den because the light of Jesus shines forth in the midst of darkness. And he has gathered to himself and sent out a reconciled people to call all nations to be reconciled to him. This is the warfare we wage. It is no longer against a physical enemy nation. We don't clap at the destruction of nations around the world. God can certainly do that and he's just to do it. But we don't sit here as Americans and say, yeah, this nation went down or that nation went down. That's not what we rejoice in as God's people. 
We rejoice that the forces of darkness have been defeated at the cross. And we fight now with spiritual weapons, not with physical weapons. That's the message we proclaim. That you can escape the wrath and curse of God by turning to Jesus in faith. That you can go from being an enemy of God to being a friend of God. If you haven't yet done that, today is the day. Don't wait. There is hope in the midst of the lion's den. This world wants to devour you. This world wants to chew you up and spit you out. Flee to Jesus for refuge. He is a stronghold for all of those who take refuge in him. He is a stronghold in the day of trouble, as we saw in chapter 1, verse 7. And if you are a Christian today, the good news is that we have already been reconciled to God and we can have assurance of our future hope that we will one day see our God face to face and that he will fully and finally defeat Satan when he throws him into the lake of fire and destroys the lion's den once and for all. But in the meantime, we wait and we hope and we need strength for the journey. We need nourishment. We need food and drink for our souls. Jesus in Luke 22, before he goes to the cross, he institutes the Lord's Supper. We read there in Luke 22, beginning in verse 14, when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. Saw earlier in the chapter, in verse 3, that Satan entered into Judas. Satan thought that he had won, that his kingdom of darkness had overcome Jesus' kingdom of light. But Jesus rose again to defeat sin and death and the devil. As we come to this table, we look back to celebrate that victory, the victory of Jesus on the cross in our place. But then we also continue to look forward to that final day when the lion and his den will fully and finally be thrown into the lake of fire once and for all. Hallelujah. Praise be to God. This table here is for all of those who have put their trust in Christ. For those who have said, yes, I have been delivered from the lion's den.
by the grace of God. This world is not my home. Satan is no longer my master. I belong to Jesus. If that's you, you are welcome to come to this table. We ask that you would be someone who is in good standing in a gospel preaching church, that you have been baptized. If you're not a member here, that you're in good standing somewhere else. Uh, for, for all of you who that applies to, you're welcome to come to the table. If that does not apply to you yet, uh, we would love to talk more to you, more with you uh, and to you <laughs> about what it means uh, to be a Christian, what it means to follow Jesus. So I would ask the elders.